ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You know that nightmare where you're suddenly somewhere naked? Maybe out in the jungle or the desert. Maybe maybe there are sharks. Somewhere physically dangerous where your naked body is completely exposed and vulnerable. That nightmare is something Kai Ferno freely chose in real life. She was a contestant in the Discovery TV series Naked and Afraid. In fact, she's been on the show three times, so that's a reoccurring nightmare in my book. But Kai seems built for extreme circumstances. She was a stunt woman in Hollywood for 16 years, filming fight scenes and explosions and car crashes in movies like Catwoman and X-Men 3. She even won a Taurus Award, that's the Oscars of the stunt industry, for Best Female Stunt Performer in the World. Then Kai's next chapter as a survivalist began with her hiking across the Sierra Nevada mountain range, carrying only a pocket knife. Kai is an adventurer down to her bones. Her happy place is pushing herself physically and mentally to the limit. Hi, Kai. Hi. <laughs> Oh, made me nervous just listening to those things. <laughs> Did I do that? Is that me? <laughs> Makes yeah. me nervous, I tell you, and I'm, I'm only asking you about it. You're back in Australia at the moment and you've been spending a lot of time in, in South Australia in a place there. Where do you live in South Australia? Describe that spot to me. Uh, it's the, sort of the beginning of the outback. So it's what everyone pictures when, when you do say the outback. It's my cousin's 38,000-acre sheep station and it's in drought country just above what's called the Goiters Line in South Australia. So when you think about miles of treeless plains and red dirt and low salt bush, that's his country. And what's a typical day for you when you're out there? Well, my partner and I live in a single room stone cottage ruin on his property. So we're about 5Ks from his main house on the station and about 50Ks from any other civilization. And it's a little ruined stone cottage that he got a builder to put a galvanised iron roof on top of. And apparently a lady and 13 kids lived in there once, but we can't even picture how they all fit because it's just a tiny little room with an open fireplace and a couple of windows. And we've put the rooftop tent off the car and it's sort of a water tank next to the building. So we sleep in the rooftop tent, but we cook and hang out in the stone cottage. And in terms of what you cook on that that open fire, Kai. When did you start hunting your own food? Uh, I was a vegetarian for 20 years due to sort of doctor's orders and health reasons, but it, uh, it turned out that that wasn't actually the best for my health. So when I decided to eat meat again, which was about five years ago, I decided that if I was going to eat meat, I wanted to do it as sustainably and ethically as possible. And the way I could think of that was hunting my own food. And I've never had an affinity with guns, but due to my 16 years in stunts, I've always sort of loved the more traditional weapons. So I decided to hunt with a traditional bow and arrow and spend a lot of time practicing and getting to the stage where I can make the shot and it's the most ethical kill that I can make. And yeah, so I just hunt feral animals because, you know, they're already an invasive species for our environment and I get my meat that way. And how often would, would you be able to hunt an animal? Like what do you need? How much do you need to kill to be able to sustain yourself out there? 
Well, once upon a time, I went out all by myself and I only lived on what I killed and I realised I could eat a goat in four days. <laughs> it's a strange sentence to say, <laughs> but all by myself, three meals a day, it takes me four days to eat a goat. Do you get a bit sick of goat after four days? You know, I have a really strange sort of mental attitude to food. I feel like it's fuel for my body rather than being fussy about what I'm putting in. So I'm the type of person that can eat the same meal every day for two, three years and then just be like, oh, I just I just don't get sick of it for some reason. You made a knife that you use in hunting. Tell me about the knife you made. The very first knife I made was a bit of an experiment. It was a friend of mine, he was forging his own knives and I love learning new skills, like anything. I don't really mind what it is. And he suggested to make my own knife because a knife is the main sort of useful tool that you have in survival. And I always love the idea of making my own things. And yeah, so we got a car leaf spring, which is sort of one of the parts of the car that keeps the suspension going. And he had this little homemade forge. You know, you heat up the metal and you bang it with a knife. It's all what you see in that old blacksmithing movies. And, you know, if you go to visit historical places where they still have blacksmiths. So it is that done that traditional way and you heat it up and you bang it into shape and then you use metal grinders to sort of get the shape that you want. And it's something amazing about making a tool that's so precious that you use all the time for yourself. Are these the kind of skills that you were exposed to as a kid or learnt at all growing up? No, I wouldn't have said that. You know, my my father, I was very fortunate. I was the youngest of two girls and my dad was sort of an Aussie rules football jock. So I think he really, really missed having a, a son at that stage that he could pass all this stuff on to. So, I mean, I was always out with power tools and, you know, I remember helping him chop wood and drill holes and build fences and things like that from a very young age. We had eight acres down in the southeast of South Australia later on in my childhood and I was always by his side wearing, you know, the tools that he was wearing. So I definitely got the the tool usage. I mean, there'll be times in my life now where I'm fixing a chainsaw chain or, you know, maintaining a power tool and I've picked it up and I'm using it and I can't even remember when I learnt that and I realise it just must have been this childhood I had. What did your mum and dad do for work, Guy? Uh, They were both teachers, so uh, primary school teachers and then in the mid-north of South Australia, I grew up early childhood in the outback and my parents were principal and deputy principal of a tiny little school there in the mid-north of South Australia that had about 20 kids in it. Mum taught reception to grade three and dad taught four to five and we're all in the one classroom. Like it was just an incredible early learning experience. What was it like having your mum and dad as your teachers? See, I loved it because... My parents were at the cutting edge of sort of experimental um, learning by doing teaching. And so they weren't the type of teachers that nobody liked. You know, we we learnt with puppets, you know, like so the kids would each take turns at being behind the puppet theatre and do the daily news and maths and stuff like with puppets and and there was like a lot of drama and music and a lot of making and creating and uh, a lot of the kids at that school actually weren't getting square meals every day so mum and dad introduced a cooking segment every day and so we would make something so at least these kids would have a square meal and you know it was it was a different kind of school so you 
you weren't the kid that like, everyone hates your mum because she's a teacher. <laughs> they all they all just loved my parents and we all had a lot of fun in that early learning. So growing up in that kind of environment, Kai, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do for work when you left school or even what kind of person I guess you wanted to be when you grew up? No, I had absolutely no idea and um, I feel... There's a lot of pressure these days for kids to know what they wanted to be. But I remember finishing my high school and I didn't have a clue. And my mother actually enrolled me into a um, diploma of tourism management, majoring in business, just because I had no sense of direction. I mean, you know, I had that, I want to be a vet. And then maybe one time I wanted to be maybe a police officer. And, you know, like as a kid, you have these these mercurial sort of things that you want to do. But I, I never really had a, a fixed idea. Things changed for you at 19 one night. Who were you with on the Adelaide freeway? I was with an ex-boyfriend that I'd been seeing and then he left me for someone else. And on that night, it was my sort of last ditch desperate attempt to win back this ex-boyfriend. And yeah, it was a, it was definitely a life-changing night in, in many, many ways. But we were driving down the freeway and... Um, Somebody that he didn't know passed him in a car and, and this ex-boyfriend's car was his pride and joy and so he didn't like being passed and he passed them and then obviously they felt the same and all of a sudden I found myself involved in a high-speed race down the Adelaide freeway and I don't know if anybody's been down that freeway but this was before the new freeway was built so it had lots of bends and it had a particular bend called the Devil's Elbow. Were you scared, Kai, as, as they started racing one another? What was going through your head? I was definitely nervous and I remember saying like, slow down, slow down, can you stop? And then I remember, I think the biggest mistake I made there was suddenly realising that he might not think I was cool if I kept that up. And, you know, it's it's one of the things when I talk about my car accident, especially to young girls, I talk about that moment where I decided that what he thought was more important than my own personal life and safety. Because I made the decision that oh gosh, you know, like I hope he will still like me and I better stop whining at him so that he will still like me. And it was in that moment, like, I, I remember saying, okay, well, you know, as long as you're good, but just don't kill me. And I remember saying those words and we went around this devil's elbow and spun out of control and went at about 60 kilometres an hour into a concrete post. And Do you remember yeah. that, that impact? Were you conscious? Yeah, so... You know, life has a funny way of of presenting you with information sometimes. So I'd just been reading a Reader's Digest magazine that had talked about the most common injuries in car accidents. And the most common injury, they said, were head injuries from your head bouncing off the dash of the car. And time just slows down in those moments. You know, I've had a, a few of those moments with stunts where my, you know, where your life might be on the line, but everything just slows down. And I remember like feeling that my head was going to the dash and actually remembering that Reader's Digest article in that split second and putting up my forearm on my head so that my forearm hit the dash and my head just sort of bounced off the softer impact of my forearm. And I remember hearing a crack in my lower back. And so the other thing this Reader's Digest article mentioned was the fact that 
you know, if you have a back injury in a car accident, you shouldn't move because you can make it so much worse. Uh, so that Reader's Digest truly, <laughs> just truly get a subscription me out. right now. <laughs> well, so you, you knew to stay still. And what about the, the ex-boyfriend next to you? What shape was he in? Everyone else was fine. So the car that, like, and this was just the crazy thing was it was peak hour traffic on the freeway Friday night and the car spun and missed every other car. It sort of sideswiped the car we were racing but they managed to stop without hitting anybody else. And our car was the only one that had the impact and I was the only one that was injured. So in that moment, my ex was sort of very concerned about his the state of his vehicle. His car. He was concerned about his car. Yeah. I guess yeah. he stayed an ex, I'm imagining Kai after this. Yeah, most certainly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talk about true colours. I was like, oh. Okay, you know, so he got out of the car and he was sort of like, oh, my car, my car. And and then everybody else was worried about the fact the car might explode. You know, I mean, it's a fair call if you've got like petrol leaking from a severe car accident. It's a good idea to get away from it. But I also had the added thought that I'd done something to my back. So everyone in the moment is just around you and and cars have stopped and people are yelling and, you know, there's obviously smoke and liquid shooting everywhere and I was just like sitting in the front seat and I just really maintained, I was like, no, I need to stay here and everyone's, get out of the car, get out of the car and I'm like, no, I just need to sit here. And then in that moment... I don't know if my mind's recreated it into a movie moment or not, but I feel like I looked to my left and the and the crowd sort of parted and this man walked through and he was just a person who'd stopped, like he wasn't an ambulance person or anything like that. And he walked over and he knelt down by my side next to the car and he was like, hey, you know, what's your name? And I said, oh, it's Kai. And he's like, so, you know, what have you done here? And I said, I think I've hurt my back. And he just sort of held my hand and he just talked softly to me. And he was like, well, it's probably a good idea that you just stay here. And, and he sort of sheltered me from all the madness that was going on until the ambulance driver arrived. And then he just vanished. Like it was a it was a strangely surreal and magical moment within that accident. And you never saw him again or, or spoke to him again? No. And like apart from the accident being life-changing, I really do feel like that moment was life-changing because in that moment I was like, well, I can't ever thank you because I don't know who you were, but one day I promise you I will pass that on and I will be that person for somebody else as a thank you to him. Yeah. And has that happened? Have you been at accidents and, and had that kind of role for other people? Yeah. So I've been first at about three accidents, but I guess the first one was strangely enough at that exact location about four or five years later. So it was on the same bend on the opposite side of the road and that in itself was like, okay, this is my moment. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is the time. Yeah, it was meant to be. So after that accident that you were involved in at 19, what did doctors tell you about your recovery? So the doctor at the time, um, he said, like, he took the x-ray and he came out and he said, okay, look, you've broken a bone in your back. And I didn't really understand what that meant. You know, for me, a broken bone is six weeks and then you're back 
good as gold. You know, I didn't really think much of it. But when I said to him, you know, what does that mean? He said, well, you know, do you play sport? And I said, yeah, you know, a bit of tennis and netball. He said, well, you won't ever play sport again for the rest of your life. And he said, you know, you probably won't be able to carry a baby to full term. And he said, you know, you'll be in a bit of discomfort for the rest of your life. And I was just like, at 19, and you just suddenly get this life sentence placed on you, which, you know, I remember it being a moment where I was just like, wow, that just sounds awful. So did you decide to fight that or was that like, I mean, how did your mind react to that, that life sentence? Well, mum and dad always say that when someone tells me no, I'm like, well, I'll show you. <laughs> so I think they said I was like that from the time I was born. <laughs> and so honestly, I remember like shedding one tear when he said it. And then I just thought like, no, <laughs> it's just like, no, I don't like the sound of that. And mum and dad reckon I stuck out my jawbone and was like, right, I'll show you that that is not what my life is going to look well, like. Well, it's certainly not what your life has looked like. What role did rock climbing play in your recovery? Yeah, so I was three months on my back and then I had a back brace, but I started to get moving as soon as I could. You know, I listened to my body rather than listening to doctors. So, you know, and I'm not, I'm certainly not saying that this is the way forward for everybody, but for me with the way I had broken my back and the lack of sort of spinal cord damage, I was just like, okay, you know, I'll listen to what my body's saying. I learned the difference between good pain and bad pain. And then one of my mates, who's an Icelandic guy, he was a rock climber. And he said, look, when you do rock climbing, it uses every muscle in your body. The only other activity that does that is swimming. He said, but, you know, come outside and I'll take you rock climbing and I'll keep the rope really tight and you won't have any big falls and we'll rehab your back that way. And truly, it was the best thing I ever did because we sort of worked slowly into it, but I just was able to really strengthen and get a lot of flexibility through my back through rock climbing. Rock climbing eventually took you to Canada. What kind of life were you living when you were first there? Um, I mean, you definitely say a, a rock climbing bum. <laughs> I, um, I loved it though. It was like a moment in my life where it was, I think, as close to perfection as you can get. Like I had a van that was an old postal van, so it was quite a big van, and she was called Brown Beauty, and I parked her by the edge of a beautiful picture crystal clear river with the Canadian mountains in the background and there was a climbing community that just lived down this dead-end road and so for all of summer there would probably be anywhere from 10 to 100 people that lived down this road and we all climbed and every night we had a fire and it was the most beautiful community of people that lived together and then, you know, you'd find a climbing partner for the next day and you would just climb all day, every day and, you know, rainy days were rest days for board games and then the rest of the time we were just out in the outdoors and it was a really blissful moment in my life. What did you learn about your body, Kai, doing doing that, spending that time climbing and being in nature? I think the most important thing I learned was, you know, we are guilty of putting these limitations on what we feel we can and can't achieve. The thing that nature's taught me the most is when I want to give up, it's probably my mind, not my body. Like I've never, ever in my life yet, and I have 
really tried to find those <laughs> limits, but I've never got to the stage where I've like fallen down or sat down and not been able to get back up again. So I just think like, we have this incredible machine at our disposal that is far greater than we know, really. What made you, you living this, it does sound idyllic. I'm not even a rock climber in it and I'm ready to go and get a postal van and, and move to Canada. <laughs> You're living this life. What made you decide to try and get into stunt work? Well, I actually was over in Canada to try and get into stunt work. So I was an outdoor guide in Australia. My love of rock climbing took me into teaching rock climbing and kayaking and sailing. And I was working with a lot of Australian, different groups of Australian people, like corporate groups, but juvenile offenders and school kids, like everybody in the outdoors in South Australia. And then somebody suggested I should try being a stunt performer. So that took me to Canada to live in the van by the river. And that sort of started that journey for me. So Vancouver was Hollywood North at the time. Um, There was a lot of productions going on and I was just like, I was a country outdoor kid and I thought if I went to Hollywood to try and become a stunt woman that I was going to get eaten alive. Like I just knew that I, I wasn't mentally probably tough enough to take on Hollywood, but Canada and Vancouver seemed a lot more gentle. Who did you meet in a bar that helped you break into the film scene? So I knew nothing about the film industry and I knew nobody in it. And then one night I was having dinner at a pub and I asked my usual question, like people like, what are you doing? And I I was like, oh, you know, I want to be a stunt performer and do you know anyone? And they all pointed out a guy who was sitting at the bar, his name was Perry, and they said, well, you know what, he does stunt stuff, you know, maybe you could ask him. And I'm I'm a bit shy, but I sort of gathered up my courage and I, I walked over to him and I offered to buy him a beer. And, you know, to his credit, he said, okay, because I'm sure he gets hassled all the time about trying to get into the film industry. But I said, you know, can I just pick your brains? And I said, you know, what do you think I need to get into the film industry? And he said, you know, do you have a headshot? And I was like, mm, what's a headshot? You know, like <laughs> I was so naive. And he's like, you know, a photograph of yourself. I was like, no. And then he said, well, you know, do you have a resume? What sort of things can you do? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I can climb and I can abseil and kayak and stuff. And he was just sort of like, yeah, none of that's going to get you into the film industry. And I was just gutted. But then he said, look, if you're serious, he said, I can give you the phone number of a guy who runs um, stunt fight classes. He said, you you have to get into film either by being a world-class gymnast and keeping in mind I was 26 at the time. I was like, that's not really (laughs) going to (laughs) happen. Or a fighter. And I was like, well, maybe, maybe I could become a fighter. So he gave me Kirk Jakes's number. And I still have that scrap of paper that Perry gave me that night. Like it's in a box that I I came across it the other day because it's such an important moment in my life. So you rang the number and and went along to a stunt fight class. What was the first class like? It was almost my last. You know, I mean, I, again, I had no idea about the stunt industry, but I also didn't own a pair of sneakers. You know, I was an outdoor girl and I only had hiking boots and I didn't own a pair of track suits or Lululemons or anything <laughs> like that. So I had, I turned up to stunt fight with my lightest hiking pants and a pair of hiking boots on and I pulled my old van that could barely make it from Squamish where I was living to Vancouver into the 
parking lot and there's just all these flash sports cars. And I got out and I walked up to the door of the gym and I walked inside and everybody just looked beautiful. You know, they all had the most expensive sneakers and matching Lulus and they're all very sporty and like very fit. And I was huge and muscly because I was a climber and also, you know, taking people guiding. So I felt very ungainly amongst all of this amazingness that was going on. And I almost turned around and walked back out again, but Kirk spotted me and he's like, Kai, I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. He's like, come on in. And he was so welcoming, but I just, I have never felt more out of place in a moment in my life than walking into that gym at that moment. What about the stunts themselves? How did your body respond to learning to fight? Was it a natural fit for you? Well, I have a very strange thing where I pick up fighting quite easily, but I remember not being, definitely not being fit enough to get into those moves. Like it was one of those workouts where for the next four days, you can't even sit down without like having to put both hands out and like support yourself down and back up again. Like I was, I was very not in fighting shape, but for some reason, like any weapon I picked up or any moves and things just really felt so natural to me to be doing those moves that that I managed to pick up the fighting fairly quickly. And how were you paying for your classes, you know, when you were starting out, given that you were there as a climbing bum? So I had a friend who sold firewood and if I chopped an hour of firewood, I could pay for an hour class. <laughs> and so that was... And you were know, doing training at the same time. Like, what a yeah, win. <laughs> I know. And I was getting fit and strong, but it was pretty hard work. It was one of those things that, you know, when people say, how much do you want a goal or dream, you know, and there's definitely days when you're like, is it this much? Is it, is it? like, as I was, like, I ended up staying a winter in my van too. So I had to sort of like build a plastic house over the top of my van to try and keep the heat in. Then I'm chopping wood and then I'm going to these classes. But I also got really, really fortunate because like eventually I couldn't really afford the classes. And Kirk rang me up to ask me why I wasn't coming to classes anymore. And I like, it's not a very nice admission to have to make to somebody, you know, like I remember being quite teary on the phone being like, I just can't afford it. You know, I'm trying. And he offered to teach me for free. So when I look back on moments in my life that someone's just been so generous Kirk definitely stands out. And I thanked him in my Taurus Stunt Award speech too, because I'm just like, you know, without this man, I wouldn't be here. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations.
So after all this training in Stunts Kai, you got your first big break in the movie Catwoman with Halle Berry and you were there as a stunt double for Sharon Stone. Tell me about that. It was just this really fortunate thing that I just happened to be the right place at the right time. I had been training kickboxing for three years and Sharon Stone needed a second double. So Zoe Bell, who's an incredibly talented um, stunt performer, she was the main Sharon Stone double, but they needed a second one for some of the big stunt sequences and they wanted a kickboxing double. And Sharon Stone's 5'8", so um, they popped a little blonde wig on me and... All of a sudden, I'm gone from nothing to being on this incredibly high action-packed feature. What was the most fawn stunt you had to do in that movie? I guess the most complex one was Halle Berry, like, spins around and double kicks into Sharon Stone's stomach and Sharon Stone flies backwards across the room and smashes into, like, a big photo frame picture of herself And the reason it was so difficult was they had shot a scene with Sharon Stone that happens afterwards and she'd been lying in a particular position, had a pipe in her hand and that was in a particular position. And so when you reverse engineer the scene, so then I'm flying backwards through the air, I have to smash this glass, which is actually quite tricky to do. And the glass has to fall down on me as I fall down. And my head has to be closest to the photo with my legs further away. And then I have to put a metal pipe in a particular position as I'm falling. And then at the last second, the wardrobe lady's like, hey, can you really look after these shoes? Because they're $8,000 each and we don't have many sets of them. (laughs) The shoes were (laughs) $8,000. Yeah. So I've got like all of these things on my mind (laughs) and suddenly I'm like worried about whether I kick the heel off the shoe or not. And sure enough, like the first thing that hits the ground is your heel, right? So popped one of the heels of these $8,000 shoes. <laughs> Is it just a given that you're going to hurt yourself, Kai, when you're doing a stunt like that? I mean, how do you not? I mean, you do learn specific ways of falling and um, break falls. And, you know, I mean, if you can, you can put a little bit of padding underneath. Like, unfortunately for women, you know, our wardrobes are pretty skimpy and revealing a lot of the time, very form-fitting. We can't get a lot of pads under, but you learn sort of how to hide little pads. And um, But I think for 16 years, I probably didn't have a moment where I didn't have a bruise or a scratch somewhere. I mean, it's just part of the job, really. You were in the movie Snakes on the Plane and Chihuahua played a a role in the stunts that you were involved in there. How did that play out? Yeah, it was sort of a similar thing to the boots, actually. Like, I had to do this really tight wire stunt. So a wire stunt, you have a, a harness on underneath, and it's like if you see an explosion and people are flying through the air and stuff, chances are they have a harness on and it's attached to, like, a team of people who are pulling you through the air. But I had to do one where I played a wealthy lady who loved her little chihuahua, and she was sort of hurrying down the aisle and the plane hits turbulence and she gets flung up and backwards and hits the overhead locker and then that opens on her and stuff falls on her and as she's falling down, they want her again to land in this particular position in the aisle. And by her, I mean me. (laughs) And so I'm like rehearsing the stunt and it's a really tight fit. Like there's not a lot of room on planes to do anything and I have to do this wire sequence and do a big smash to the ground and land on my front. And they come up to me at the last second and they're like, so, you know, we've got little Fifi here and she's holding on to Fifi through this whole stunt. Do you think you could do this without hurting the dog? (laughs) 
<laughs> I was just like, I mean, this dog had its own trailer. Like, there's no way I'm risking that dog <laughs> on this stunt. So they ended up finding me a little stuffed toy and I, I sort of just tried to cover it with my body so they couldn't tell that it wasn't Fifi, but yeah. You did stunts for X-Men 3, which, I mean, I imagine is some of the most intense stunts that you were involved in. How complex is the preparation for, for filming some things in that film? There's a sequence where um, mutants are leaping off the ruined end of the Golden Gate Bridge and into um, the courtyard at Alcatraz. And that sequence was probably one of the most precise sequences I've ever had to do as far as wire stunts. Like there was 10 of us going through the air and every one of us had four people operating our wires like a puppet. So you had to have one person that pressed a button that shot you into the air because you were going about 50 metres out but about 20 metres up. Like it was a really huge sort of flight through the air and then they had to land us nicely down onto the gravel in Alcatraz. So you are just a puppet on a string but if you don't hit your precise mark... The pit in front of us was literal concrete and jagged steel and, you know, if you're off your mark when the people hit the button, you're going up and down into that concrete area instead of going onto the safe place to land. Like, it was just so precise. So that one in particular, we did a couple of months rehearsal for that plus some fight sequences. But um, then another one on that one that we couldn't really rehearse was The little bit after that, a character called Magneto throws some cars into the air and another character called Pyro explodes them with fire. So these were real cars and they would, like, shoot them off ends of cannons, like just, like, pirate (laughs) cannons. And these cars were in the air and once they were in the air, someone else pressed a button that exploded a petrol bomb in them. And so these bombs would then explode, but you wouldn't know which trajectory the bombs were going to shoot the cars into. And so they would have like two or three cars in the air at once and landing in this courtyard. And if you watch the sequence, it looks like it could have been computer generated, but it's actually us down in that courtyard just sort of playing this whack-a-mole where we were trying to, like, dodge these cars in the air. Like oh, it. my God. I've never felt safer to work in radio than this moment. So what's your, like, are you, is your adrenaline firing at, at when that's happening? What's going on for you mentally in those moments of those kind of stunts? Well, that one in particular probably goes down as one of my most, uh, one of the most moments where I would say I thought I should have called my mum and said goodbye. (laughs) I was just like, and I've thought long and hard about why that was. And I think it's because I'm a control freak. People think of stunt performers and they think of the old cowboys where they would like get drunk and do drugs before they go on set. And I'd be like, yeah, anything's fine. Just (laughs) throw me down that thing. Whereas I had 16 years in stunts because I am very risk adverse and I and I'm very able to control how much risk gets involved in each stunt. I mean, and there are definitely things that you can't control, but this stunt in particular, I had no control over anything. You know, like I don't know where the cars are going. And then the stunt coordinator on the third time or third or fourth time we did it, he decides that he wants something different. So he puts me at the very front 
and he has me acting like I'm injured and getting dragged backwards by two people. So they can't now see where the cars are coming from because they're running forwards. And I can see where the cars are, but I can't run. <laughs> so it was just like this little control freak had no control over anything whatsoever. So you spent 16 years in this incredible career and, and in this, you know, huge blockbuster world of, of Hollywood why did you then want to head out into the wilderness and, and become a survivalist? Well, I sort of started moving into that towards the end of my stunt career. And a lot of that was just, where do I feel most alive? You know, I started realising, you know, that the Hollywood scene just was changing a bit who I was at my heart. And so I sort of headed out into the outdoors and realised that's just where my soul sings. Mm. And then I... I don't know, I guess if you combine the stunts and the outdoors, you get this need to just push myself and go a little bit more extreme each time. So I decided that if I was going to go in the outdoors, I just wanted to make it the most extreme experience I could possibly make it. So I thought I would head across the Sierra Nevadas with a pocket knife (laughs) and see if I could survive. Okay, let's break that down. So what, what does the Sierra Nevada mountain range look like? What kind of terrain is it? The place that we started off, so we went from the west to the east and honestly I thought it would be this luscious forest the whole time and it was this beautiful sequoia forest to start, like those towering redwoods that you read about in documentaries and and lush undergrowth and plenty of water and I was just like, we are going to nail this survival (laughs) thing. You know, there was wild raspberries that we were eating and and that was the first day and a half but the... (laughs) The Sierra mountain range has sort of uh, been subjected to open farming, so a lot of cattle just free range in there. And so the the cattle have destroyed a lot of the natural environment. So once you get over that perfect lip of beautiful sequoia forest, you get into a very, very harsh and sparse land. We were certainly in a position where um, the very few animals that were there were very wary of human beings. So, you know, anything that we thought we were going to hunt was gone miles before we even got eyes on it. So, I mean, I quite often think about the time I starved my way across the Sierras rather <laughs> than survived across it. And um, I came out the other end realising I had a lot to learn about living off the land with a pocket knife. Where did you go about learning those survival skills? I mean, you had all this physical, all these physical smarts. You'd grown up out in the bush. You'd had that stuff with your dad. But, you know, surviving in the wilderness alone is a whole other scenario. Where did you learn? Well, my niece likes to say that I'm like an outdoor scientist. So I think that a lot of it was self-experimentation. I'm not very good at reading and learning, you know, like I, I definitely need to be experiencing to learn. And, you know, you make friends that are doing those things. But a lot of my stuff was more putting myself into scenarios and finding out what works and what doesn't work. <laughs> well, after that, that experience with a pocket knife, more survivalist TV roles came your way. And for people who aren't familiar with it, Kai, what's the premise of Naked and Afraid? I always say the difference between someone who likes Naked and Afraid and someone who doesn't is someone who likes it has actually watched it because I know it sounds it sounds really... Um, titillating, obviously, and it was sort of brought out with the idea that that might have been the case. But what they ended up with was this show that was an incredible look at 
human beings are capable under pressure. So the premise, and I got asked to do the first season. So keep in mind, no one had ever done this before. This concept came out of nowhere. And when Discovery asked me the first three times, I told them no, (laughs) because there was no way I was going to be naked on television. But they do pixelate. So, you know, technically nobody sees my nudity. But a guy and a girl are dropped in the middle of nowhere for 21 days because it technically can last 21 days without food. So you're dropped in a position in the middle of the outdoors. You have to survive 21 days and you can take in one item. So between the two of you, you have two items and then you, yeah, you just have to survive. And, you know, you can tap out. There is no prize money. You do get paid for being out there, but it's not a lot. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's just looking at what are you capable of when you are stripped of everything. Literally stripped and, uh, and mentally stripped. So let's just deal yeah. with the nudity first. Mm-hmm. Because you've done all that work with your body as a stunt woman, I don't know, maybe you have a different relationship with it. Was that challenging for you being starkers or did you get used to that pretty quickly? It was one of the reasons I decided to do it because I never really was happy with the way my body looked. It's one of those things when you look back on it, you're just like, if only I could tell 17-year-old me that she looks amazing, you know, like and, and that she would believe it. But I was never a person that would skinny dip. I wouldn't flash anyone, you know, like I'm just not that person to get naked. So... I was sort of like, well, if I'm not comfortable with my own nudity, this might be a really great time <laughs> to, to see if I could get get okay with it, you know? Um, Extreme exposure therapy, okay. <laughs> and I'm always up for a challenge and it's like, if there's something that makes me nervous, I want to do it until it doesn't make me nervous anymore. So that was a huge part of me accepting it. But it was one of those things that... The location they dropped us in was so extreme. So they're dropping us off in Louisiana swamps and it's alligator mating season. It's also, it's reptile mating season. So not only the alligators are a little fiercer, you've got these um, cotton mouth snakes that are a little, like they're venomous and they're a little more aggressive too and they're everywhere. And they don't drop us off on dry land. I'm in a canoe and they're like, take your clothes off now. And you have to then just get into waste deep swamp water where the alligator experts just said, oh, you know, if you see bubbles, just stop because it might be an alligator. You know, so the second I'm naked and in that water, all I'm thinking about is where are the alligators? I'm not actually thinking, oh my gosh, my breasts are out. You know, it's like a totally different mindset the second your life is in danger. (laughs) And you're there with someone else, with a stranger. Does that Uh make it easier or, or harder? What's that dynamic? Well, I thought it made it harder. But then I, my third episode of Naked and Afraid was Naked and Afraid Alone. So it was just me naked and then it's just weird because then you've got, you know, the, the crew that comes in every now and then, they're all clothed and you're the only <laughs> naked one. So at least when there's two of you, you know, as, as awkward as that might be, you're not the only one out there. <laughs> You survived um you survived finding food. You didn't have to starve for 21 days. What were some of the weirder things you ate in those naked and afraid challenges? Well, in the first one, our main staple were those snakes oh. and yeah, they were everywhere. So 
honestly, if it moves, you just kill it and eat it. And um, I learned that venomous snake flesh is a little tastier than non-venomous. I don't know. I can't explain it. We we had the weirdest experience where, um, as I said, they were in mating season, so they're the ducks, like their glands were producing a different secretion to normal. And one of the days we accidentally boiled one of their glands in with the snake meat. And we didn't realise until we started eating it, it was sort of like, oh, the top of that looks a bit oily. And it tasted so bad. We had to throw out the snake that we'd cooked, which was just so sad. But from that moment on, I could smell where the snakes were in the swamp. Like it was just like this, like Spider-Man senses. <laughs> I could just like, oh, there's a snake around here somewhere and you could find them. So that became easier to hunt them for sure, but so strange. <laughs> and what item did you bring with you? When you said you could choose an item, what did you take? Look, I'm always going to take a knife, but producers ask you for four items and then they choose one so you don't have the same one as the other person. So in that case, um, Billy took his knife along and uh, being in a swamp, fire is going to be really, really hard to make. So I took a a ferro rod, which is like a, um, they call it a flint and steel or a ferro rod, but it's a, a way of making fire. And then once you were out of that, once you'd survived those challenges, what was the best thing about escaping? What did you look forward to most when you came out of there? You need to lock the refrigerator door, like, when you get home because, honestly, like, you're probably eating, like, I mean, there were days we had nothing, like, probably nine or ten days we ate nothing and then other days you're getting, like, a snake which doesn't have much food on it. So your body's just starving. So, you know, you just eat anything and everything when you get out. Um, The funniest thing that I miss, or I don't know if it's funny, maybe a lot of people feel this way, but when I sleep, even if I'm really hot, I like having even just a sheet over my body and that's probably the thing I miss most out there is not having a covering of any sort when you sleep. Like it's a strange one. I don't miss food that much. I don't miss a comfortable bed. I just miss like having a sheet on me when I sleep. I hope, I really hope you didn't get bitten anywhere. I mean, I think that's the other fear of being oh. nude. It's not just the it's not just the self-consciousness. It's I don't want to sit on anything that I'm going to regret. Look, the Amazon, if there's not something biting you and stinging you, then there, then there's something wrong. You know, like it's a, it's a strange, yeah. So, so I did Louisiana, which just was festering with these mosquitoes that can carry you off. And then I did Bahamas and they had mosquitoes and sandflies, like the worst that anyone had experienced. And I was sort of like, well, it's pretty similar to Louisiana. And then um, the producer, when she asked me to do a loan, she said, I promise I won't put you anywhere with insects. And then it turns out the only place they could get me was to the Amazon. And it was just like, I just, like, there were ticks, like, and they don't even discuss in my edit the the tick bites I had. Like, I I got like a muscle paralysis from one tick and oh like just it's just like so there's ticks but then there's every kind of ant like they have a bullet ant that if that bites you it's like being shot and then punched in that bullet wound like 
and and then you've got fire ants, which if you've got enough of them on you, like it feels like ele- you're just being electrocuted. Like it's just like just insane. Then the mosquitoes, of course. I had a policy. Something was crawling on me, but it hadn't bit me within about 30 seconds. It could stay. You know, <laughs> it's just like, oh, man. What do your mum and dad make of, of it, of I guess all of your work, but of that show? How, what kind of comments did you get from them after they watched the episodes with you? Well, when I got the call, I was holidaying with them in Byron Bay. So I went downstairs and I explained what I'd just been asked to do and mum and dad are like, nope. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you're right, I'm not doing it. And then I talked myself into it over a three-day period. So they sort of watched me go, but, you know, like this is, this is the thing I love and this is the biggest challenge ever presented in the thing I love, you know, and, and who, when are you ever going to get to test yourself like this in a, in a fairly safe environment? You know, so I talked myself into it. So they watched that whole process. But, you know, they don't sleep when I'm out. They just get terrified and they get sick to the stomach and I hate putting them through it. Like it's about a month and a half with the lead up to it and then me being out that mum and dad just hate every minute of it. But then they are so proud of the achievement at the end of it. Like I feel sorry for dad's mates because, you know, when they come around and I've done a new one, it's like he makes them watch it. <laughs> Just, it's all right, dad. But he's like, no, no, you should see what Kai's done now. And so like, these poor people that have known me, it's just like... You were on a holiday in the UK before COVID hit. What happened after you posted some some photos from Bristol on Instagram? Yeah, so I was um, I had a few meetings in Bristol, and I just posted a picture of a church and I put underneath it, you know, like, I love the history in England. You know, we don't get it in Australia, how old the buildings are. And then I got this message from someone going, oh my gosh, that church is right by my place. And I don't usually speak to people I don't know much on Insta, you know, like I'll give, if someone feels like they want to comment, I will give them like a thumbs up or something. So I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. And then um, no response from the person or whatever. And I was like, oh, yeah. And then one of my meetings got cancelled and I had some spare time in Bristol. And so I thought, well, that guy lives in Bristol. And I tried to look at his his profile, but it was private. And it said he was a bushcraft instructor. And I was like, well, that's cool. Maybe he knows some interesting things to do. So I wrote to him and I said, well, what's there to do in Bristol? And he wrote back. He said, well, Henry VIII's original bloodline of Peregrine Falcon can still be seen on the cliffs over here at this place. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's just like, that's the coolest thing ever. And then, and he's like, and there's pirate caves under Bristol that are open at certain times of year for people to go and visit. And I'm like, holy cow, that's amazing. You are speaking and, my love language, mysterious right. stranger on Instagram. I, I know, right? And so then we back and forth for a while about the other things to do. And um, and then I, I just like meeting people who are like-minded, you know. I mean, I'm careful. So I just said, look, my meeting's cancelled. Do you want to go for a coffee tomorrow morning? And the guy said, yeah, sure, I'll meet you here for coffee. And I didn't know whether he was 17 or 70 or anything in between. And You hadn't um, seen a photo of him? No, no. I just knew that he was interesting and they liked bushcraft and, you know, that was... I'd love to meet people like that. So I was walking to the coffee date and I friend requested him and he accepted my request on the way to the coffee date so I could see what he looked like. And I was like, oh, hello. (laughs) (laughs) 
was like, this gorgeous looking guy appeared on my Instagram feed. <laughs> so I got very lucky um, to meet my now partner, Caleb. <laughs> so was it a meeting of souls straight away at that coffee shop? Yeah, like we only intended to spend, you know, 45 minutes hanging out, having coffee. And four hours later, I had to rush to get my train out of Bristol. But we just, it was nonstop like, oh my gosh, me too. Oh my gosh, me too. What happened next? I left him in Bristol and we kept communicating and every now and then we'd be chatting and I'd be like, wow, you'd be just like the most amazing zombie apocalypse partner. You know, we both have the survival skills. We both hunted. We both, you know, loved using the whole animal and self-sustainable lifestyle. And then all of a sudden this pandemic hits and I'm in America and he's in England and we're being told to sort of choose a country for the next you know, six months or so. Well, at the time we thought it was two weeks. And so I just wrote, I said, look, something crazy. I have to fly back to Australia tomorrow. Do you want to come and wait out this two-week pandemic in Australia? And um, he said, well, my work just got cancelled for tomorrow, so I'll hop on a plane tomorrow as well. So he hopped on a plane from England. I hopped on a plane from the US and we both were the last plane accepted from those places that made it back into Australia before the borders closed. We landed in Melbourne and my parents threw me my car keys from across the road and we drove to my cousin's sheep station. (laughs) And as I was driving there, I just suddenly got this sinking feeling that I just made this the worst mistake as far (laughs) as bringing this UK bushcraft, like he's also a chef, you know, so he works in high-end restaurants in, in the UK. And I was taking him to this one-bedroom ruin of a stone cottage in the middle of nowhere with no running water, no electricity, no internet, you know, and just being like, yeah, how does this look? (laughs) Well, as you hung around. Yes, he loved it. We ended up being there for seven months, as you know, the pandemic (laughs) shut everything down and, yeah, we that was home for the next seven months. Kai, it's been an absolute, I feel like I've just had a great big shot of tequila talking to you, so thank you so much. I really loved having you on conversations. Thanks for being our guest. Oh, you're welcome. It's been lovely chatting with you. You've been listening to a podcast of conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hello, Conversations listeners. Jonathan Green here from RN's Return Ticket. On our show, we take you on journeys of the mind. No passport required. We'll chat with some fine guides in destinations you'd love to travel to. Come travel with us here on Return Ticket. You'll find all the episodes on the ABC Listen app.